Well, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well this morning with all the snow. Winter's a little early this year, but that's okay. I like to ski. So, you know. Good morning. I'm Jared Jenkins. I'm the missions and discipleship pastor here at at Risen Life, and, and we're continuing in our wisdom um, from the Scriptures series, and this morning we're going to look at Psalm 24. So if you want to go ahead and turn to your Bibles there. Uh, basically, this, this series, we've taken some of our favorite passages as pastors, and we're just communicating them to you, what God has shown us, how we have lived in these passages over the years, and uh, we're sharing that with you. And so, this morning, I get to share one of my favorites, which is Psalm 24. We actually did Psalm 23 a couple weeks ago, and now we're doing Psalm 24. And, and to me, this is just a really cool psalm. It has a lot of cool stuff that we're going to see today. And I like this psalm because it's, it's one of the ones that I probably quote most regularly to myself. In fact, usually on early mornings, if I, I'm driving on 215 and you can kind of see the majesty of the mountains, and in particular Mount Olympus, when you come into the Risen Life parking lot, I quote these verses to myself because I, I see the majesty of God in the mountains, right? It speaks to me. And then I begin to see and feel my place as a man. And so I get out of, out of my car in the parking lot. Usually I take a little stroll through the neighborhood, just do a little prayer walk. And I say these verses to myself. Verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Because God, you are awesome. <laughs> who can approach you? And the answer in the psalm will be, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And in that moment, I'm reminded of my inadequacy, right? That, that I don't have clean hands and a pure heart all the time. And yet, at the same time, the psalm speaks and it tells us that the work, it is the work of Christ that forgives us and gives us the clean hands and the pure heart to be in His presence. And as we'll see with the end of this psalm, we'll say, let the King of glory come into our life, right? So that we can be in His presence, and I begin to pray for God's work in my life, that He would cleanse me of my sins, that I would walk in His ways, and that He would be with me and I could be in His presence. And the cool thing about this psalm is I think it will take us, it takes us through all these thoughts and emotions. It, it takes us through this whole progression, seeing the greatness of God, feeling our position before God and, and what we should aim at, and yet the coming presence of Christ into our life. And so we'll consider it in those three sections. Psalm 24 easily breaks up into three sections. First two verses will remind us of the greatness of God, and then the next three verses will, will answer the question, who can be in the presence of God? What is that person like? And finally, the last three verses will tell us about the coming presence of the Lord. And the cool thing is that throughout, throughout, I believe this psalm speaks about Christ. And we'll see that. So let's jump right in here and look at the first two verses that speak to us about the greatness of our God. It opens up in the first two verses with this grand premise that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Let's, let's hear from Psalm 24. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. For He has founded it upon the seas 
and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Well, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And as we said, this psalm opens reminding us that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. It's celebrating God's supremacy in the world as the one and only creating God. And there is an echo back to the, the creation language of Genesis 1. The God who created the heavens and the earth out of, out of nothing. This is part of what the Bible claims, what it means to be God, that, that you can create whatever you want. There is no other God like Yahweh. He separated the earth from the chaos of, of the waters of the sea. You see that in verse 2. And then God filled the new spaces with plants and animals and everything that we see, everything that we love on this planet, everything that we know, He created it. Created it all and it is all His. Mount Olympus, His. The Great Salt Lake, His. The herds of the elk running in the Uintas, His. The sound of the seagulls and the passing ducks, they're His. The wind that changes the weather like we had today, even the snow, it's His. He says He brings it out of His storehouses. All His created by Him for His purposes and continuing under His direction. He is God. And verse 1 goes even deeper. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell within. Not only is the world and everything in it the Lord's, but verse 1 tells us also all those who dwell on the earth are His. Mankind is His. Every man, woman, child, all of God's creation are created in the image of God, designed with a purpose to, to reflect His glory on earth. We are God's. And sometimes we reflect His image really well. Just the other night... Uh, I was at the symphony, and, and I, I just love the symphony because I, I was reading the little blurb, you know, they have in the program about the, one of the symphonies we heard, and it said, it said the, the, the guy that wrote it, the musician, had, had this in his head, and he, he just had to get it out, and he, he wrote it down in a month. That's just amazing. That's amazing that God created us with those type of abilities that reflect his glory and His image. Brilliant. 
We can think of all the things man has made reflecting God's creative ability. It's all awesome because all of it is God's and we are God's. And yet the heart of man's rebellion is to stand in defiance of what this psalm is claiming and yet claim the very opposite, that we are not God's, rather that we are our own and we can do as we please that we can do with we, as we please with the things of the earth, that the earth is ours. And we actively deny God's presence in our lives and in our world. And yet, even worse, sometimes we, we say to ourselves that we are even as if we are God. Psalms 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or even worse yet, makes ourselves out to be God. There's a famous story about the the theologian R.C. Sproul. I don't know if you know that name. Um, But he was on a train, uh, and he was just sitting by a woman and and overheard a conversation. The woman was talking about a two-week spiritual retreat that, that she had been on and how she had learned how the divine was actually in her, that she was divine and was telling her friend about this and how enlightening it was. And she turned to R.C. Sproul and says, what do you think about that? He slowly folded up his paper and set it down and looked at her in the eye and said, do you really think you're God? And she said, no, no, actually I don't. (laughs) No, I don't. And two weeks of the indoctrination was gone in a moment when we consider the majesty of God. Psalms 2.4 says of the Lord that He sits in the heavens and He laughs at our attempts to throw off His rule from our life. He laughs at it. It's like the two-year-old that I have at home when instructed by me comes up to me and says, No! And we smile and laugh and say, Well, that's cute. Right? And whether we like it or not, God rules the earth and everything on it because He created it all. And it is His and we are His. And yet I want you to see that Christ is even here in the first two verses of Psalm 24. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3 tells us this, that God created all things through Christ and that He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His power. This means that Jesus created Everything you know and love, and without Him they do not exist, and you do not exist. Think about this with me for a second. This means that Christ upholds your very being. You're right now being sustained by Him, and if at any point He decides to be done with you, you are done. It gets even deeper when we think that God is so gracious that He is even now upholding those that hate Him in the hopes that they would come to Him. And our response should be praise, praise of this amazing God that has come to know us so intimately in person of Christ. In fact, one of the first steps in becoming a believer in Jesus is to admit that He is Lord. You are Lord over everything, including me. That's what Romans 10, 8 summarizes the gospel. As a Christian, you confess, Jesus is Lord. 
He is God, I am not, and if He made me, then He might have something to say about my life. And so we begin the process of learning what it means to live with Jesus as Lord. He is Lord. It is through Him that God created the world. It is all His. We are all His. And the question is, will we follow Him or will we rebel from His leadership and lordship? And so the psalmist praises God for His complete supremacy in our world as the God who created everything we know. And that realization of the majesty of God, the lordship of Christ in our world, it leads the psalmist to consider the next question. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. And this is going to be about who can be in the presence of this great God? Verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We know that this psalm was written by David, and most likely he's reflecting on the process of heading up to the tabernacle of God where God's presence dwelled in the innermost holy place of the tabernacle, who could go in there, right? And later we know that the Jews would again through this psalm reflect on the, reflect on the process of heading up Mount Zion where God's temple was above the city. Who can enter his temple? When we consider God for who he is and what he has done, The answer to that question has to be no one. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy presence? The answer is no one. No one is good enough. No one can meet the requirements that God would demand before anyone to appear before Him. Clean hands and a pure heart. In fact, ancient Israel, only one man The high priest could appear before God, and that only once a year for a small amount of time. And it took a tremendous amount of sacrifices and ritual cleansings to prepare himself for that small moment in God's presence, and even that wasn't guaranteed. God might lash out, and he may kill him because of his sin. In fact, we see this in the Bible when the saints and the prophets of old are in the presence of God. They all feared for their life. They felt acutely aware of the immensity of their sin before God. Isaiah 6, Isaiah is ushered into the throne room of God and seeing God's glory, he's overcome with his sin and he says in verse 5, Woe is me, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Daniel 10, when Daniel encounters a vision of the Son of Man, he's utterly terrified and falls down on his face, fearing for his life. Revelation 1, we see John, when he encounters the risen Christ, fall at his feet as though he is dead. Who can stand in the presence of God? No one. Psalm 14 tells us this way. They are all corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand and who seek after God, and they have yet all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And yet we know that's not the end of the story. There will be one who can stand in God's presence And his name is Jesus. And he will make it possible for us to come in with him into the presence of our holy God. And we're going to see how that's going to go in just a moment. But before we do that, I want want to explore a little deeper the characteristics that David has listed here for for men that are to be in the presence of God that he gives us in verse 4. And five, and I want to be careful with this because these verses do two things. One, they remind us of what it takes to be in God's presence, and so it convicts us of our sin. We feel the conviction of how we don't measure up. And yet, you have to remember that for those that have given their lives to Christ, you now, you now stand before the King as if you have the clean hands and the pure heart Because you have been given Christ's righteousness. And so for us, it becomes a motivation. We stand before the king as if we are righteous. Now walk in his righteousness. And it gives us a path for life and how we should aim as believers in Jesus. And so here David gives us four characteristics of those that stand in God's presence. First, they have clean hands. Okay? This means that the actions of your life and and your body, when they are considered, they are found to be good and godly and righteous. Listen, following Jesus is not just about what you believe, but it's also about what you do and how you live. We cannot forget that. As Ezra prayed in Ezra 7.10, he wanted only to know God and his law, but he wanted to do what God had for us to do, and then he wanted to teach it to others. So how do we get clean hands? Well, there's two ways. Either you stop digging in the dirt so you don't get dirty, or you get some soap and you wash your hands off. Clean hands take on a whole new meaning when you have three little boys. (laughs) Sometimes they come in and they sit down to eat and you just go, what in the world is on your hands? What have you been doing? And you get the ambiguous, oh, we've been digging. Which could mean all sorts of things, right? Not to mention your fingernails. What is going on, guys? Go wash your hands. For us as believers in Jesus, the Ten Commandments are a good place to start in Exodus 20. It tells us how to love God and love those around us. Those are ways that you can act with clean hands. And when you screw up, you wash your hands and you seek forgiveness in Christ. And Jesus promises to wash them off. God desires us to live godly, holy lives that reflect who He is. That's why He created us as a holy, awesome God, completely holy, completely loving, and who always does good. And this passage asks us to consider our lives. Do you do the works that Christ has set out for us as believers in Jesus? Have you refrained from evil And if you have dirt on your hands this morning, do you need to repent? 
We're going to be talking more about this aspect of the gospel uh, at the men's retreat this weekend. And this is an invitation for all the guys in this room. I hope you come with us this coming weekend as we look at the gospel in Ephesians 2, or Ephesians first two chapters and what it means to be a man of the gospel. God saved us by his, his grace, not by our works, but then we are created to do good things, to, to do the acts with clean hands. And we are living in a day when we need to see some clean hands. Be the guy at work that follows the rules because you have a God that you honor. Be that family that is willing to give extraordinarily because you know that there is a God who loves you and gives to you. Be the friend that refuses to speak ill of his friends. Be the man that pursues God in the midst of a godless generation. This is what God desires in his hand, his people, clean hands. Secondly, David says, it's those that have pure hearts that can enter into the presence of God. And the heart here is being considered, it's the root of the person, it's the soul, it's our deepest part from which all our thoughts and our motives reside and, and arise. And, and you may wonder, well, why does the heart come after the hands here? Why doesn't it have a clean heart and then have clean hands? And But it's most likely that our deeds precede us, right? People see our deeds, and yet God looks deeper. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want outward conformance to His ways, because that would be religion. He wants a heart with all the right intention and no action. He wants the heart that is willing to act. It's kind of like when I sometimes, uh, you know, if we, had, if we had all heart and no intention, it's kind of like when I, I come to my wife and it's, you know, it's maybe a special moment in our relationship and I talk to her and I say, you know, I was thinking about you all day and I thought about this that I could do for you. I thought about getting you flowers and I thought about getting you, um, you know, a present, and I just didn't have time, right? I had the right heart, but I had no action. And yet it takes both of these things is what the man of God has to be, clean heart and right action. God desires that our actions would come from a genuine heart that loves and wants to follow Him. And notice, I want you to see this. This is the same thing that Jesus gets out of the New Testament, even though you didn't commit murder, if you hate your brother, then you've committed murder. Even though you didn't sleep with your neighbor, if you look at a woman or man with sexual intent, you've committed adultery. The heartbeat of the Bible is that God's people would be cleansed both in heart and in deed. They would be pure throughout. They would be people of integrity. And God has always desired people pure hearts from the Old Testament to the New, and we live in a day where we need pure hearts. Broken world. You can be light in this world. You can shed the light of the gospel by living as genuine people, not manipulative, honest, loving, and sacrificial because you know a God that did the same for you. And now here's the good part, because what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that God, by His Holy Spirit, does a little heart surgery in you. 
Okay, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 tells us that when we come to him, he reaches in by his spirit and he removes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and will cause us to walk in his ways. He asks us to follow him and walk in his ways and the blessing of the gospel is he actually gives you the ability to do it by his spirit. Back Philippians 2.13 says, It is now God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so what do we do when our lives get out of whack and our heart motives are less than holy? And we have a little dirt on our hands. So we said before, we wash them. We repent. One of the greatest prayers of repentance is Psalm 51 by David when he repents from committing adultery with Bathsheba. Listen, and don't let that go by you. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and God is forgiving it. Our God is a, forgives the big sins too. Psalm 51, 4 and 10 says this. This is David's attitude when he's washing his hands. Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We can see the dove soap suds in David's wash basin as he gets his hands and his heart clean before the Lord. What is it that God is asking you to repent of this morning? What part of your life needs to be made clean in the blood of Christ this morning? Thirdly, David tells us that those that appear in God's presence, they do not lift their souls to what is false. Okay? In the context of Psalm 24, I want you to see, this is talking about idol worship. That those who have been in God's presence worship nothing but Him. He is their highest desire. They trust in no one or anything else to care for them except for God. And it begs the question, what do you worship? What do people think about you? You know, one way to, to find out what you worship is, what do people bring up when they think about you? Is it, man, what a follower of Jesus this is? Or do they know more about your favorite team? Maybe your finances. Maybe even your political stances. Uh, I saw this picture uh, a couple weeks ago of a pastor, and, and for Pastor Appreciation Month, his congregation had baked him a cake, and it had a very political um, uh, comment by somebody who might be our president on the cake. And I thought, man, what a tragedy that you're known for that instead of following Jesus, right? Maybe our idol is putting too much faith in the government, we can also look at what do we spend our time on? What do we spend our money on? What's the one thing, whether material or an experience, that you would go crazy if it was withheld from you? It might be an idol that you're serving and has you enslaved. But God wants His people to be people who worship Him and Him alone. Have a heart that only beats for Him. And finally, David gives us one other thing. He says, finally, the person that would be in God's presence, they do not swear deceitfully. Meaning that those that would be in his presence are found to be true to what they claim to be. Listen, you hate hypocrites in church? God does too. 
Okay, he's right there with you. He says he doesn't want those who swear deceitfully. And we see in the prophets that God denounces the Israelites again and again because they've gone after other gods and the things of the world, and yet they still claim to be his people. They did the stuff of religion even though they ran far from God. They cheated their neighbors. They had no thought for the poor. They partied all the time. They made offerings to idols, and yet they would still claim to be God's people. We see this in Amos 5, 21 through 24. God says this, I I hate it. I I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs and to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But instead let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. They continued to worship Yahweh even though their hearts were far from Him. They were claiming to be His and they were not. So it begs the question to us, do we claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet we never get near Him until Sunday morning runs around? Or do we raise our hands and worship as if God is our number one and then we curse Him and those around us all during the week? And David is telling us this is what it takes to be in the presence of the Lord and yet we will see that there is a way that we can be. And those that do come into the presence of the Lord, he says, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation. And such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. David speaks of a group of people that are working at these very characteristics, that they are seeking the Lord in his very face, and they will receive blessing and righteousness. Listen, guys, we need a generation of believers in Salt Lake City that seek the God of Jacob. This is for all of us, the young, the middle professionals, the old, the parents, the college kids. Wherever you are, we want to seek the face of God. We want to be in His presence. David says we will be blessed from the Lord. And you know what that means? You primarily get Him. His blessing is His presence. And Jeremiah 29, 12 through 13 says, gives us this promise that you will call upon me, you will come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And he will make you righteous because Christ is righteous. And this is where this psalm takes us. These last three verses give us the key to how we get there in Jesus. And this is the really good part. What we see in these last three verses is a wonderful call and answer section in the psalm that announces the coming of the Lord into his holy city, Jerusalem, into his tabernacle, into his holy temple. And the psalm asks, who is this king of glory that's knocking on the gates? Not because they don't know, but because they want to praise God and highlight his majesty and his might by announcing his presence, that this is a great and mighty God who is successful successful in everything he undertakes. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. We see this come together in beautiful ways. At one level, these verses are announcing the coming presence of God into the tabernacle to be with those that have have ascended His hill and yet a much deeper level. And, And this abrupt announcement announces the coming of the King who is meant to, to heal any downcast heart that has fallen short of being able to come into the presence of God because there is one strong and mighty who can enter the presence of the Lord, and it is Jesus. Lift up your heads, O gates, that the King of glory may come in. And the King of glory came riding into Jerusalem one day on a dusty road on the back of a donkey. Listen to what Luke says, Luke 19, 35 through 38, and it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as Jesus rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Who is the King of glory? It's Jesus. And this is the same Jesus that entered the temple and taught them about what it means to follow God. It's the same Jesus that has clean hands and a pure heart. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling everything that the Father willed for Him and loving all as the Father loved Him. When tempted, He did not lift His soul to anyone else. And He does not swear deceitfully, but He speaks truthfully to us. It is Jesus' righteous life that perfectly qualifies him to ascend the hill of the Lord into the heavens and stand in God's presence forever. In fact, this is what Hebrews tells us, that Jesus has become a better priest serving in a better temple because of his better sacrifice of himself on the cross. Jesus enters into the heavenly temple as truly the one with clean hands and a pure heart and now lives interceding before the Father on our behalf. Here's what Hebrews says to us. Hebrews 7, 24 through 26 says this. Jesus holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above in the heavens. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 continue and say this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This means that we can stand in the presence of God because Jesus has made the way. In fact, it was paid for on the cross. Jesus dies the death that we deserved. He takes all of our sins and atones for them, pays the debt we had to God. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. David said those that would ascend would receive the righteousness and blessing of God. Here it is. And you are declared forever righteous before the Father. And if we are in Him, we can stand, as it says, go in confidently, draw close to the throne of God with clean hands and a pure heart because we stand in the blood of Christ. Sometimes I go to the Eastern Orthodox Church for their Easter service, not because not I agree wholly with their theology, but I like one thing that they do. And, and it's the way the whole service is designed. It, it starts in the dark, Right? And it symbolizes that we are in the dark, we are dying, and we are lost with no hope. And it talks about how Jesus comes into the world, he lives his life, and then he dies. And it seems all hope is lost. And yet suddenly, God raises him from the grave. And the priest comes out of the back of the church with one candle in his hand, bringing light into the world, and he begins to share that with those around in the church. And everyone files out of the church as if we are going out into the world to spread the gospel to those that we would find. And we, they parade around the church, and they come back to the door. And you know what they then recite? They recite this psalm. The priest acting like Jesus beats on the door and they say, who is it? Who is there at the ancient gates? And he says, it's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory. Let me in. I am the one that can enter in to the presence of God. And as the priest goes in, it is as if all the members of the church are coming in under the cloak of Christ. Such a beautiful picture of the way that we come into the presence of God because Jesus has made the way. It's not about what we've done, but about what He has done. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? It's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up. Ancient doors, the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, He is the King of glory. And Jesus goes into the presence of the Lord forever with all those that have placed their trust in Him, forever bearing Him as a covering before the Father. Then you can come on up. Finally, this psalm speaks to us and says, Jesus, the King of glory, stands at the ancient doors of your heart and is knocking and wants to come in. Listen, do you hate the way your life has been stuck in the same sin year after year? Lift up the gates of your heart that the King of glory may come in. Do you want to pair that broken relationship that you've had with others and with God? Lift up the gates of your heart. Let the King of glory come in. Do you want hope in this life and the power of the Spirit to face everything that comes at us in this world? 
Lift up the gates of your heart. Let the King of glory come in. Wherever you are, whatever you have done, Jesus wants to come into your life as Lord. He loves you. He wants to forgive you, and He wants to teach you to walk in His ways. As Revelations 3.20 tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Relationship with Jesus starts first by declaring him Lord. And then he wipes away that dividing wall of sin that kept us from access to the Father. In Christ, you're able to ascend his holy hill. You're able to boldly approach the throne of clean hands and a pure heart. In Christ, you have been made clean. And he stands ready to receive you if you'll come. We're going to come to a time of decision here as we sing and in, in response today. I'm going to sing a great older song asking God to give us clean hands and a pure heart. That we would be a generation that would seek him. And I want you to respond. If you don't know Jesus, ask him to come in. He's willing and able. Become a follower of Christ this morning. And if you've known him and you haven't been pursuing him, let's wash our hands.